0: to you from the at and Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struly, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest Democracy Watch newsletter, he wrote how some Oklahoma Republican lawmakers are trying to stop the upcoming execution of Philip Hancock. Keaton, how did Hancock end up on death row?
1: So on April 27, 2001, there was an altercation at a home in southwest Oklahoma City, uh, Hancock ended up shooting and killing, uh, two men. Um, that, that case was tried by an Oklahoma County jury in 2004, uh, that sent, found him guilty of first degree murder and, uh, sentenced him to, to death. So that was a little, about 19, 20 years ago.
0: Al, uh, what day is he set to be executed?
1: His execution date is set for, uh, November 30th. So coming up here in about a little over a month.
0: Now, uh just to be clear there's a consensus, right, that he shot and killed two men. Nobody's disputing that.
1: Nobody's disputing that. Yes.
0: All right. So, why do Hancock's attorneys argue he should be granted clemency?
1: They say that uh he acted in self-defense, uh that uh the the two men that he shot and killed were were after him, that they were uh had locked him in a cage and were were torturing him and um that, that he was able to break out and, and was acting in self-defense, uh, when he shot and, and killed them. Um, so that they're making that argument, which was, uh, presented at trial, but they're also arguing that, uh, his, his attorney at trial was, um, on drugs and alcohol and not, and not competent to give him a good defense and didn't, um, do do a good job there um, and there are some other evidentiary things they're they're trying to bring up but uh, that's kind of the the brief scope of what what they're arguing and, and trying to get his execution stayed
0: Now uh, which lawmakers are backing Hancock and uh, are they uh, planning any new legislation based on his case?
1: So last week there was a, a press conference where representative Kevin McDougall, um, from Broken Arrow and Representative Jefferson Humphrey from Lane uh, spoke in, in favor of, of clemency for Hancock. As far as legislation uh, on his case specifically, probably not. But on the, the death penalty issue as a whole, uh, McDougal has been really outspoken about wanting to get a death penalty moratorium and, and questioning uh, basically the process of if someone on death row has new evidence, is, is the state uh, considering that that well enough. Um, of course, that's going to be uh, probably an uphill battle to get any kind of a, a death penalty moratorium or uh, that sort of thing through the full legislature. Uh, but that's that's what he's been pushing for based off of the case of uh, another death row prisoner, Richard Glossop and uh, Hancock and, and some others. Uh, so that's something to watch here coming up.
0: Well, uh, you mentioned Richard Glossop. Attorney General Gentner Drummond has uh, notably supported the effort to stop Glossop's execution. Um, that's another death row uh, prisoner who claims to be innocent. Has Drummond weighed in on Hancock's case?
1: He has. In In a statement, he essentially said that, uh, that he is guilty that uh, his attorneys have brought up if there was... Uh, new DNA evidence tested that it, it would uh, help exonerate him or, or bolster his self-defense de- claim. Drummond says that uh, basically that's nonsense. Um, so he, he is uh, supportive of uh, Hancock's execution, uh, Drummond is.
0: Well, at some point, pardon and parole board will consider Hancock's case uh, before the execution date. When will that happen?
1: That's set for uh, Wednesday, November 8th. I, I believe that's a Wednesday, uh, about three weeks before the, the execution date.
0: And what would have to happen for Hancock's execution to be stayed? Uh,
1: so there are a few different avenues. Uh, one would be that, that clemency hearing. Uh, if the, the Pardon and Parole Board uh, issues a favorable recommendation, um, the governor can take that up and, and grant him um, a stay of execution. Uh, of course, Governor Stitt has only done that that once in his term as governor, uh, commuting Julius Jones's death sentence to life in prison without parole. Um, and Oklahoma is one of the few states where the governor needs that recommendation from the Pardon and Parole Board to grant someone on death row clemency. Uh, so that's, that's one avenue. Uh, the other would be uh, some kind of a last minute stay or, or ruling from uh, federal court, Supreme Court. That's um, would somewhat rare, but uh, it's not unprecedented. So those, those are the, the two maybe avenues there.
0: All right, well thanks, Keaton. Uh, you can read all of Keaton's work covering democracy and criminal justice on our website, Oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can sign up to get Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch, delivered to your inbox. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations, and she's here to talk about a new wrongful death lawsuit against the Pottawatomie County Jail. Whitney, who's suing the jail and why?
2: Well, Russell Gage is suing the jail in Pottawatomie County over the death of his father, Jerry Gage. Jerry was detained from January until March of last year, 2022, when he was beaten to death by his cellmate. Detention officers were unaware that anything had happened until that cellmate used an intercom to tell jailers that he had beaten up Jerry. And when they found him, he was laying on the floor bleeding, covered in bruises. He was taken to the hospital where he died two weeks later, and a medical examiner in the state ruled his death a homicide.
0: So what do we know about Jerry Gage and how he ended up in the Pottawatomie County Jail in the first place?
2: Well, Jerry was 78 and he struggled with several medical conditions. He was disabled and had some mental health issues. He was outside of a nursing home in Oklahoma City where he had previously lived and received some treatment for his conditions when the police were called. He was sort of um, trashing the property and creating a scene according to the Oklahoma City Police Department. When the police arrived, they found that there was a warrant for his arrest in Pottawatomie County because he had not appeared in court for an old uh, DUI. And so they arrested him and transferred him out to that
0: jail. All right, now, if uh, Jerry was killed by his cellmate, uh, why is the family suing the jail?
2: Well, Jerry's family is making a few claims in the lawsuit that basically come down to violations of Jerry's rights because the jail failed to protect him. So the jail is obligated by law to, you know, essentially keep people alive in their custody to house and provide basic needs for people. Um, When Jerry's cellmate was uh, put with him in a cell, The cellmate had been accused of assaulting a police officer, so he had a a violent history. And he was awaiting a competency hearing, which means that he had some known mental health conditions. Jails are supposed to keep detainees with mental illness separate from the rest of the jail population. Um, to protect those folks who, who have mental illness as well as others around them. So the lawsuit is claiming that the jail put Jerry in harm's way, uh, basically breaking its own policies when they put the two together in a cell.
0: Now, this isn't the only wrongful death lawsuit against the Pottawatomie County Jail, right? Uh, who, who else is suing?
2: That's right. So there are currently three families suing. There's Jerry's family. That's the newest lawsuit. Um, Shelly Kaler, she filed a lawsuit in July over the death of her wife, Kelly Wright, She was in the jail for about 12 hours before she was rushed to the the hospital where she died and was covered in bruises, had several broken bones. uh, But Shelly has been unable to find out any information from the jail about what happened to her wife. So she's suing them as well as the family of Ronald Given. Uh, that's an ongoing legal battle that's that's been going on, I believe, for about two years now. He actually died in 2019 at the jail due to an altercation with jailers there.
0: And now, you've been uh, covering the Pottawatomie County Jail for months. Uh, in fact, your recent investigation found that the jail covered up the deaths of detainees and its care. Remind us what you found there.
2: Right. Well, I found at least seven people who died after being detained at the jail since the current jail administrator took over in 2017. The jail has been ignoring pleas from those families for information about what happened to their loved ones. In a lot of cases, they they really don't understand, you know, what happened. In Jerry's case, we have a pretty clear idea of how he died, but that's certainly not the case for a lot of these other folks. Uh, in a couple of those cases, the jail has even ignored court orders to produce documentation like, you know, medical records, incident reports, video um, from the jail. and they're ignoring requests for public information um, from us and from others. Um, as well as the jail's governing board uh, is violating open meetings laws. so really they're they're essentially operating behind closed
0: doors. Now, uh, part of that cover-up, as you just alluded to, was the jail's refusal to produce uh, public records. Have any of those records appeared since your story was published?
2: Yes. So after the story published last month, I began receiving some of the records that I had requested from the jail in reporting on that story. Uh, There are still some requests that have gone completely unanswered. Others have been, you know, partially filled. But I have received a few things like uh, booking sheets, for instance, for all seven of those people who died. So that's some pretty basic information that is public for any jail when someone is booked into a jail, you know, the the booking sheet includes things like the date they were booked in, their name and age, as well as what the charges were. So I do have that information. And I've also received some video footage of two of the detainees that I'm still reviewing um, and a few other documents that kind of all came in right after the story published.
0: All right. Now, you spoke to uh, the district attorney Uh, Adam Panter out there in Pottawatomie County for that story. And uh, he indicated he was pretty concerned about some of what you turned up in your investigation. Uh, The health department also expressed concerns about the jail's lack of uh, required reporting. Uh, Have there been any updates on those fronts? Is anybody uh, pursuing that?
2: That is a question I am currently trying to answer. So I have some calls out to uh, the folks that you just mentioned, as well as some others, the Attorney General's Office and a few other agencies that have expressed some sort of interest or, you know, have some sort of purview over what jails in Oklahoma do. And so I'm hoping to have an update for our readers later this week. So stay tuned for that.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read all of Whitney's uh, coverage and her investigation into the deaths of the Pottawatomie County Jail, as well as her other stories related to vulnerable populations. You'll find them all on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. Reporter Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's been following the statewide virtual charter school board's approval of a new religious online charter school and is here to talk about the latest development. Jennifer, what's new with St. Isidore, the proposed Catholic charter school?
3: So the latest is there is a new lawsuit. Uh, This lawsuit dropped on Friday the 20th and was filed by the Attorney General Gettner Drummond against the statewide virtual charter school board members.
0: And what's the gist of his legal argument?
3: Um, so, he kind of reiterates some of the things his office has been saying all along, trying to to um, uh, advise the board, you know, not to approve this school. Um, he's saying it violates the state constitution, uh, which, of course, requires public schools to be not affiliated with any particular religion. Uh, he says it violates the U.S. Constitution's uh, Establishment Clause, uh, which, you know, prohibits the government from establishing a religion. And he even points out that it defies voters who, um, you know several years ago uh, defeated a um, state question to change the Constitution and allow some public funding to go to religious institutions. So basically his his major argument is that, you know, there it, it violates the religious freedom of individuals to compel them to pay for um, a religious institution like the school, um, that, you know, goes against their own beliefs.
0: All right. So Drummond is saying the best way to protect religious freedom under the Constitution is to prevent the state from sponsoring any specific religion. Is that right? That's right. Okay. How did backers of the school respond to that?
3: they say denying the school's application would discriminate against a religious entity um so it, it you know both sides are saying religious freedom um but I think the the backers of the school are more toward instead of individuals they're focused on an institution and their freedom to um you know get tax dollars basically through this um this public school
0: now in Drummond's filing he said the, State sponsorship of St. Isidore also puts school funding at risk. Can you explain that?
3: Sure. So this was uh, something that I hadn't heard anybody bring up previously um, that I thought was really worth noting. Um, He argues that by approving the school, um, our state is now going against the agreement that they make you know with the U.S Department of Education to receive federal education dollars and that agreement is to, you know, um, follow the Constitution and to uh, not uh, fund religious schools. Um, and so he's saying you know that that federal funding now could be at risk and in the most recent year that was about 945 million dollars.
0: So, what prompted the action at this moment? Why is Drummond suing now?
3: Right. So, there have been quite a few steps that this uh, this statewide virtual charter school board has gone through um, with the school application throughout the year, and um, the most recent step is they did sign the contract. Um, There were some questions over um, how that would get done, but it did end up getting signed by both parties, and then the lawsuit came shortly after.
0: Right. Now, uh, you mentioned that the contract was signed, but noticeably missing was the signature of the board's chairman, Robert Franklin. Why did he refuse to sign the contract?
3: Right. He has been opposed to uh, this school's application um, throughout this process, Um you know, he says it violates his, the oath of office that he took um, as a board member to uphold the state constitution. So he's voted against it. And once the board, the three other board members, which is enough for approval, voted yes, um, he, he, you know, voted no. And it's typical for the chairman to sign those contracts, but he said he, he would not do it because, again, it is you know, a violation of of his oath of office. So
0: So who on the board voted for the contract?
3: So we had Brian Bobeck, who is fairly new to this board, voted yes, um, as well as um, Scott Strawn and Nellie Sanders.
0: What do you think happens next here?
3: So there was another lawsuit uh, recently that we did not um, think would go to the Supreme Court. But this one, um, Drummond says he is fully prepared to take this one all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court if that's what needs to happen right now. It's in the state Supreme Court. So I do expect we'll be following this lawsuit um, as as far as it goes. There's the other lawsuit that from the group of parents that we're also watching. Um, and then, of course, in the background of all of this, the board is dissolving. The state legislature, this past session voted, um, approved, um, doing away with this small board and created a larger board that would oversee all virtual charter schools, um, as well as some brick and mortar schools. And they've started appointing members to that board. Um, So we're kind of in a transition process as well.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's coverage of the proposed uh, Catholic virtual charter school, St. Isidore, as well as all of her other education coverage. You can find it on our website at oklahomawatch.org, where you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.